The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to take your Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 21. We are two days past Christmas, and it is my privilege to open God's word once again and to speak to you about the birth of our Savior. Of course, I would much rather see you in fellowship with you. Uh, Christmas time is a traditional time of fellowship, and we all know there's certainly nothing traditional about this Christmas. And with a non-traditional Christmas, I feel much better about asking you to open your Bibles to a non-traditional Christmas text. I mean, we're usually used to reading in Matthew or in Luke because those are the only two books in the Bible that record the birth of Christ. And they are the familiar Christmas text. But there are a few times that I have selected different texts and then we have incorporated the Christmas story into those texts. Uh, For example, last week I spoke from Romans chapter 11, and that is not a traditional Christmas text. And today, the text that I've chosen may not look like it has anything to do with Christmas. In fact, the timing of this text, the timing of the events that are mentioned here are not in the past, but sometime in the future. And we don't know how long away that it is, but if the events of Revelation started to unfold today, it would be at least 1,007 years before we would come to Revelation chapter 21. Now, the Christmas story, of course, is 2,000 years in the past, and this text is somewhere more than 1,000 years in the future, and yet the story of these two texts spanning Thousands of years is one and the same. Christmas is part of the story. It's the essential hinge pin that connects the past, history of the past, with the eternity of the future. And now if you'll look in your Bible at Revelation chapter 21, I'll begin reading in verse number one. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. 
Now, today's message is an evangelistic message. Now, we don't always preach a pointed evangelistic message. We do want every message that's preached in this church to come back to the glory of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross to save us from our our sins. Now, today we're going to focus more on the evangelistic side of this Christmas story. And what we have just read is a wonderfully hopeful text in these days of fear and uncertainty. The uh, we need this hope of our eternal future with God. Now, what we have read is John's vision of the holy city that God is preparing for those who are the faithful of his church. And the scene that is unfolding for John is a vision of the resting place, the promised place where all the redeemed will come face to face with God and worship him and dwell with him for eternity. Now, I want to call your attention to verse number five. And he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these things are true and faithful. Behold, I make all things new. Those six words are our Christmas text. Behold, I make all things new. This sentence relates to Christmas because this is what Christ did when he came into the world. He came and he changed the relationship between God and man and he made all things new. In Matthew 1 verse 21, the angel Gabriel spoke to Joseph and told him that Jesus would save his people from their sins. And Jesus came and he was made in the likeness of human flesh and his arrival upon this earth changed everything. Nothing is the same since Christ came. Now, salvation was his goal in coming into the world and salvation would not be possible if Jesus had not come to earth. Now, a few years ago, I had a friend who was fond of using the term sea change. Whenever he could, he inserted that term into his conversations and he would say something like this concept is a sea change from what we originally intended. Now, perhaps that term is not familiar, but it basically means a profound transformation. Now, it comes from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, and the way that Shakespeare used it was to describe how a human body that was left in the sea became crusted and turned to coral. The sea changed human flesh. It changed this human body to a calcareous skeleton. Now, from that beginning, the phrase itself was transformed into an idiom that means any kind of a radical transformation. And if we use that term, we could say that Christmas was a sea change, that Christ coming into the world was a great transformation, especially in relation to those that Christ came to save. Christmas is the hinge on which humanity swings. Time hinges on the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ divided time. Every event before Christ came is dated B.C., that is before Christ. And everything afterward is A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Everything is different because of Christ. 
even those who care nothing at all for Jesus must use a system of dating that's based on his birth, the birth of the most important person that was born in the history of the world. And the birth of no other person has made such an impact that it changed time. Now, most people couldn't name the birth date of any religious leader, but nobody that owns a watch or has a calendar misses the date of Jesus' birth. And Jesus' arrival to this earth was for the purpose of making all things new. Now, when we read this in Revelation 21, verse 5, you can be sure that God did not intend these new things for those who care nothing about Christ. Revelation chapter 21 is a text for believers only. This is a a text about those that Christ came to save. For them, all things are made new. Now, today I'd like to discuss with you some Radical transformations that happen because of the birth of Christ. Now, I realize that most that listen to this message are are saved people. Most are members of our church. But as I said, this will be an evangelistic message. And if you are not a Christian, then I ask you to pay very close attention to this message. You need these transformations because without them, you'll never be a part of the glory that we read in Revelation 21. Christmas has no meaning for you without these transformations. In fact, if you listen today and you are not transformed, then you will remain as you are a sinner condemned under the wrath of God. Now, first, I I would like to discuss a transformation of our view of God. Now, if you look at verse number three again, John writes, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, do you see tabernacle? That is a great Bible word. The the tabernacle was the first place that God dwelled with his people. In the Old Testament, Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle, and this is where God would meet with his people. The tabernacle was just a tent of worship, and in the wilderness wanderings, it was placed in the center of Israel's camp, and it was the place where God's presence was displayed in a brilliant light that was called the Shekinah. It was the formal place of worship, and yet it was just a tent because it needed to be picked up and moved as Israel journeyed towards the promised land. Well, many years later, the tabernacle was replaced with the temple, and the temple became the permanent place of worship. But the tabernacle remained significant because it was the prototype for the temple, and it was the first physical place that God came to dwell with his people. Now, though God was present in both the tabernacle and the temple, he was not realized in a personal way. The common people never saw this brilliant light of God's glory. The people didn't interact with God on a personal level. Israel had priests that uh, spoke to God for them. 
A priest is a mediator. He is one who stands between the common man and God. And it was the priest of Israel that represented the people before God. And so the people could not personally approach God. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle John made an interesting comment about Jesus in the first chapter of the gospel account. And in verse 14 of that chapter, he wrote, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that he speaks of, that is Jesus Christ. And John said, the word dwelt among us. And the literal translation of that is the word tabernacled with us, or the word pitched his tent among us. Now that language is Jewish in character. And they understood it to refer to the tabernacle where God first dwelt with his people. When Jesus came into the world, that changed because God came to dwell with us in a different way. He came to live in a personal way. Well, then John goes on to say in the 18th verse, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. Now, God, who is spirit, left heaven and he came to this earth. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh dwelling on earth. And as that verse says, he is the visible manifestation of the father. And he came and lived among common people. And that was an astounding change because this hadn't happened before. Not in the Old Testament. There God dwelt with his people spiritually or sometimes he was seen in theophanies, but he was not there permanently in a physical body. And what Jesus did was to prove that God loves us enough that he desires a personal interaction with us, that he's not a God that we imagine to be somewhere out there way beyond the blue. And it's impossible to personally know him and his love for us. No, what Jesus came into the world to do was to reveal the Father. He came to connect God and man. And it's sad. It's sad today that there are cults like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses who deny the equality of Jesus Christ with the Father. And so they may say he is an angel or that he was nothing more than a man. But if Christ was only a man, if he is a created being, if he is an angel, then we still have no personal interaction with God. Oh, Jesus is the one who connects us in a personal way with the Father. And perhaps as bad or worse is the Roman Catholic teaching that we still need a priesthood to connect us to God. No, Christ came to end the mediation of human priest. He is the prophet, priest, and king. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling with us. There is no other, no other one who dwells this way. We need no mediator between us and the Father. We are in Christ and we know the Father. We are in touch because we are in Christ. Scriptures are clear about this. Christ came to change our view of God so that we know that there is a God in heaven above who loves us and that he was willing to become man, that he might dwell with us. Christmas was a change 
Because never did anyone have this kind of a physical relationship with God. So God, the immortal spirit, became flesh. He became human. The transcendent God immensity who fills the universe and beyond. This God was carried in the womb of a Galilean virgin. And he came to dwell with us. Is there a transformation that is more radical than this? Is there a greater transformation than that the infinite spirit God will become flesh and blood. And he did this so that we would have a new view of God. The infinite, sinless God was willing to dwell with finite, sinful man. But it's not just God dwelling with man. There's so much more in this great transformation. Next, we would look at a transforming conversion of sinners from sin. In John chapter 3, we read of an encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a prominent Jew in Jerusalem. He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was the highest religious ruling body of the Jews. And one night he came secretly to meet with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach and The Spirit of God was working in Nicodemus to show him that Jesus was different than hundreds before who pretended to be the Messiah. Jesus was not a pretender. He had never been. Jesus had never been to any of the Jews' religious schools. And yet when Nicodemus approached him, he, he called him rabbi. That's teacher. And that was a term of respect. And he said... By what he had seen, that Jesus must be a teacher that came from God. Well, yes, Jesus did indeed come from the Father God, and he was God, and he knew what Nicodemus had on his mind that evening. He knew that Nicodemus was struggling in his heart. He knew that he was convicted by the teaching of righteousness, and Nicodemus knew that he had fallen short of this righteousness that Jesus taught. And he realized that he missed a true relationship with God. Before he was even able to ask Jesus his question, Jesus gave him the answer. Nicodemus never even got to ask, what must I do to have this righteousness? What must I do to be right with God? Before he asked that, Jesus had the answer and he said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in that statement is another of the great transformations of Christmas. Jesus came into the world to be born so that others could be born again. What does that mean to be born again? Oh, curiously, that was Nicodemus' next question. This time he was able to ask, and he questioned, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And in Jesus' answer, we find the truth that every person must know before they can see the kingdom of God. This is what they must know before they will see Revelation 21. You must be born again. And that and that means that Christ must make a radical transformation in your life. 
You see, the Bible teaches that all people are born spiritually dead. That our natural birth brings us into the world with no relationship with God. And even worse, we are the enemies of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible teaches that all people are under God's just condemnation. It is their sins that condemns them. Their natural birth brings them into the world, hopelessly dead sinners who are powerless to do anything about the guilt of their sins. They are spiritually stillborn and they come into the world dead to God and dead to his righteousness and dead to his kingdom. And unless God, by his grace, should touch them and give them life, unless God raises them from spiritual death into spiritual life until they are born again by the spirit of God, they will perish forever. God must give them life to enable them to repent and believe. And friends, this is the reason that Christ came into the world. Christ was born so that you can be born again, so that you can have spiritual life. He came to pay the penalty of your sins and only by faith in the blood of his cross will you have everlasting life. You can't see God. This is what Jesus said. You can't see God unless you are born again. You must be converted. You must be transformed. You must be translated into God's realm. That is into the kingdom of light. John said in Revelation 21, verse six, and he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, when John wrote this, he had in mind only those who are born again by the spirit of God. Only those who are born again can drink of the water of life. Now, what they could not do before, they are enabled to do. They can drink of this fountain of water of life freely. And this is the fountain of living water that springs up into everlasting life. This is the great transformation of Christmas. Dead sinners, because of what Christ did, are transformed into living saints. That is a radical transformation made possible because on Christmas Day, God became man. Well, then there's something else that happens. The sinner is converted from his sins. And then along with this, there is another great transformation. Our third observation is a transforming recreation of the old sinner into new saints. And when sinners are born again... They are in the beginning of their spiritual life. They begin a new life in Christ. Now, before they were dead sinners, dead in trespasses and sin. But now, once they have believed, they are transformed into saints who are enabled to live radically changed lives. Paul states it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When you are in Christ, you are a new creature. That is, you are a new creation and you have been recreated for a holy life. You're enabled to a sanctified life. But that doesn't mean that when you're saved, 
the old that the old desires that you had are immediately gone. It doesn't mean that all of your evil passions suddenly disappear and now you are as pure in actions as Christ himself. No, you are not as pure in actions as Christ. But there is a wonderful thing about this transformation, and that is that you are as pure in heart as Jesus Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ by which you are justified. And there is no sin in the past and there is no sin in the future that will condemn you. Well, I I would dare say that there are none of us that have not already sinned this early on a Sunday morning. I mean, who hasn't had an, an evil thought cross his mind? Some are already angry. Some are irritable this morning. There are millions of things that can happen. And our reaction to those things is often an evil thought or even worse, it might be an evil deed. Oh, there are billions of demons that that Satan uses to tempt you in every conceivable way. You didn't lose the ability to sin when you got saved, but you were set free from the condemnation of those sins. You will not be judged for any of those sins because you have been forgiven of all sins through Jesus Christ. Now, while we're still in the body, there is sin that remains. So this verse does not mean that you lose all ability to sin, but instead we have this new standing in Christ. Sadly, This verse is often taken out of its context to prove what it doesn't prove. And we can see the true meaning of what Paul says by reading the next two verses. These are the explanation of what he's trying to convey. He says in verse 18, and all these things are of God who hath reconciled us by himself or to himself by Jesus Christ. And it's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that is to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. This is the work of Christ to reconcile us to God. What we can't do ourselves, Christ does. And the thing that is new is this new standing that he gives us. We are a new creation, meaning uh, that through the blood of Christ, we have been reconciled to God and our sins are no longer imputed. That is, they are not charged to us. We stand justified in Christ. And this is another radical transformation Before Christ, we were under the wrath of God. There was no justification. We were guilty. We were vile sinners on the way to hell and justly deserving to go there. But thank God, through the sacrifice of Christ, through his blood that was shed on Calvary, we're made a new creation, freed from the condemnation of God's law. You are justified from sin. You are changed from hostility against God To friendship with God. And so the old condemned sinful creature that you were before is gone. And you are recreated as spotless as the Lamb of God himself. And do you understand the reason? It is because a transferring transformation happened. Your sins were placed on the sinless one. And his righteousness was placed on you, the sinful one. So there are two great transactions that take place. 
are two great transformations that take place in this transaction. Christ became sin for you and you became the righteousness of God in him. Now, you go on reading a little further in the same chapter, and this is what Paul says. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that is a transformation for both sides. The one who knew no sin was made a sin offering for us. And the one who was only sin, always sin, was made righteous Now, thank God for Christmas, because when Christ became a man, he made sure his people could be recreated from sinfulness into righteousness. Well, let me go on. God dwelt with us. That is a change in our personal relationship with God. Christ converts us through the new birth. That is a moral change. He recreates us in new people that are justified and reconciled to God. That is a legal transformation. And these are radical changes. Now, fourthly, is the transforming conquest of death and raising to life. Now, hear me now, because this is what makes Christianity so radically different from all other religions. Now, in the beginning of the message, I I said that Jesus Christ divides time. Everything before his death, that's B.C., before Christ But did you notice that time since the birth of Christ is not termed after death? Now, seriously, that's what some people think that A.D. means after death. And that, of course, would make no sense because then we would lose 33 years of the time of his life. And so we would also need a D.L. time during lifetime uh, for 33 years. But no, since the birth of Christ, time is reckoned A.D., which is Latin for Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Now, do you realize what that means? It means that God-haters and that atheists and others that hate Christ must admit that he is alive. Every year that passes on the calendar is a year of our Lord, which is an admission that Christ is alive. There is no after death for Christ. There is no perpetual death because Christ lives. Now, here is an interesting uh, thing, I believe. Do you know what our Constitution says just before the signatures? Before the first signature, before the first signatory, which was George Washington, there is this statement. It says, done in convention by the unanimous consent of the states present. The seventh day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787, and the independence of the United States of America, the 12th. Now, our government, our government today does everything possible to get God out of government. Now, when the framers wrote the Constitution, they spelled this out. They signed it this way in the year of our Lord. Well, who are they talking about? Oh, unless you're in total denial or you're a complete nutcase, everybody knows who our Lord is. Time is reckoned by Jesus Christ. And the framers didn't write A.D. They spelled this out in the document in the year of our Lord. They were concerned 
that the work they did on the Constitution in forming this country, they were concerned that this was sanctioned by God. Friends, Jesus is alive. He was born in Bethlehem. He walked on this earth 33 years. He was taken to the cross and crucified. He was put into the tomb. And three days later, he arose from the dead. Who among us would say that a resurrection is not a great transformation? I've been to many funerals in my time, probably more than any of you. I preached the funerals of many dear saints in this church. But there's not one time that I saw one of them sit up in the casket, wave to the crowd and thank them for coming, attending the funeral. I haven't seen that. People go into the casket dead. They go into the tomb dead. We don't expect them to come back to life and get up and walk out of the grave. We don't expect it except except for one future event. A time will come when the dead shall live. Jesus said this in John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Now there Jesus is telling us that the bodies of believers will rise to live again. I think you would have to say that is a sea change for the dead to come back to life. And why must they live again? Jesus explained in John 14, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, I live because I live. Ye shall live also. Now, he said that just before the cross. Because I live, ye shall live also. Now, he was on his way to die. He was on his way to that cross where those criminals died with him. Now, previously, he said some marvelous words about his death. He was going to die, no doubt. Now, turn to your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 12. I'd like you to see this in your Bible. In John Chapter 12 and verse number 23, I'll start reading there. Jesus answered them, saying, the hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. He's talking about his death. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, that, that's a beautiful expression. Jesus was a master of language. The King James Version states this eloquently. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus said, I must die. If I don't die, I'm like an unplanted Grain of wheat, a single seed that is not planted stays one seed. But when that seed falls into the ground, it germinates and it brings forth much fruit. And there Jesus is speaking of believers. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection and his life bears an abundance of more fruit because he lives. His people will live. Then he goes on. 
He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour came I into the world. Why do we have Christmas? Jesus said, because for this, I came into the world. Speaking of his death, he was born to do this. He was born to die. He came to give up his life so the dead could be raised to eternal life in him. He said, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Isn't that amazing? That is a transformation. Jesus was the first to die and then to be raised by his own power. Listen to these words that were spoken by Job. He asked, if a man die, shall he live again? Job knew the answer. It's a rhetorical question for him. He says, all the days of my appointed time, will I wait till my change come? If I die, will I live again? I will wait until the appointed time. Till what? Till my change comes. That's the ultimate transformation. Death is conquered and we shall be raised to life. First Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You recognize these as words that come at the end of Paul's great resurrection chapter in first Corinthians 15. Our hope of eternal life is secure because Christ is no longer in the tomb. He was raised from the dead and that makes it possible for dead bodies that couldn't get up at their own funeral to fly up through the air when he comes again. Then listen to what Paul says in verses 51 and 52 of that chapter. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Changed, he says. A transformation is coming when the Lord comes again. Now, friends, he couldn't come back to earth if he hadn't been here at first. He was born, came to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He was born, he lived, he died. And then rose again. And because he is alive, that promise that he made to come back, it's possible. And he says he's coming back to change us. Anno Domini. In the year of our Lord. It's not in death. It's not after death. Because Jesus is alive. So thank God for Christmas. Thank him for the transformation of Christmas. Well, this brings me back to our text again. Revelation 21, verse number one. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, what is the last transformation? Well, number five is the transforming construction of a new home. Everything is going to change. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And the superlative of abundant life in Christ is eternal life. We get all the blessings of the grace of God in Christ today. And we get all the fullness of joy and happiness in the new world that he will make for us tomorrow. A new heaven and a new earth are coming. The first heaven and the first earth will dissolve. Now, I would tell you, do not get too attached to this old earth. Don't spend all your time trying to save the planet. Even with the Green New Deal, this earth will not survive. Peter said, but the day of our Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So there's nothing physical that will survive the destruction of this earth. On some future day, this earth, as we know it, will be gone. I mean, as it's been said, if you're worried about global warming, well, here's the ultimate global warming. It's so hot. Nothing survives. We will not save this planet. We will not destroy this planet. God will take care of that. Well, get it out of your head that fossil fuels and carbon emissions and greenhouse gases are the destruction of the world. No, God made it and God will destroy it. Nothing we do will save it. And when God decides to destroy it, it won't be a slow, painful death. It'll be gone in an instant, not a slow, painful death that's caused by too many hairspray cans. Listen to what Peter says next, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. God said, behold, I make all things new. Jesus came to earth. He lived and died to be the savior of the world. He lived and died to take care of our sins, to save us from our sins, to give us new life in him. And we need to uh, listen to that message to understand who Jesus is and and what he did for us. Oh, it's a it's a wonderful thing that God does for us. He is he is going to come again. God says, I make all things new. So Jesus came. He grew up. He lived a perfect life. There was an agonizing death to make all things new. Well, he, he spoke this encouraging promise to the disciples before he died on the cross. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. Jesus went back to heaven to construct a new home that is for those who believe in him. So another transformation is coming. This earth will be dissolved. The heavens that you see will disappear. Jesus will make all things new. Our old earthly home will be gone and a new eternal home will be ours in the heavens. Now, I preach this message today because I wanted you to know that Jesus was born so that things could change. He is the great divider of time. But he's also the great divider of people. He said that judgment is coming. And on that day, he will say only to his people that they may enter their new home in heaven. But listen very closely. He has another word for others. We didn't read far enough today, but it comes in the next verse. What he's going to do to others in the eighth verse. But the fearful And unbelieving and the abominable and murders and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There are two types of people in the world. Those who are God's people and those who are not. If you haven't trusted Christ, you are not one of his people. And the transformation that is in verse number eight is not what you want. You will leave this world and the very worst that you have experienced, the worst thing that happened to you on this earth will not compare with the punishment that is to come. And so if you've not trusted Christ, I encourage you to do it now to be changed by him, to enter a new relationship with him. You will be converted from your sins. You will be created new in Christ. You will conquer death. You will be raised to life. And you will live in a new home that's built by God. Oh, there was a radical transformation when Christ was born. It was a monumental change of Christmas. And now all things are new. Oh, I do hope this transformation has already happened to you. I hope that by faith in Jesus Christ, that all things have been made new for you. And if that has not happened, it's not too late. If you are breathing, if you are alive, you may come to Christ and receive him now as Lord and Savior. The Bible says he'll not refuse anyone who comes to him in faith of the great transformation of eternal life is a gift that is waiting to be received. And I hope that this gift of eternal life is your Christmas gift this year. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for Jesus Christ who came into this world. We thank you, Father, for giving us your Son, giving up your only Son to come to this world to die a cruel, agonizing death, to come to this earth to satisfy and to fulfill everything that was written about him, to live a perfect life, to be uh, the justification of our sins, to give earn righteousness that could be given to us, 
all sorts of transformations that take place in the birth of Jesus Christ that are that are for the benefit of your people that we might come to you and see you face to face and glorify you forever. Lord, I pray for people who haven't received Christ yet, that this message will speak to their hearts and someone will come to know you as Savior today. Bless us, Lord. Bless our church. We thank you for it. Uh, Be with our people. Bring us together. We can fellowship again and enjoy the very things that we've talked about in this hour. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I'd like to give you a final benediction from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. And in this passage of scripture written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, it also says that God will do a new thing. In Isaiah 43 and in verse number 15, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh the way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Well, this message puts us past Christmas, but we're still thinking about it. Still thinking about Christ who came to the world. And if you haven't received Christ this Christmas, uh, do it before the new year begins. Go with God. Be safe. We hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.